How are you feeling? You good? No? Feeling is such a subjective thing, isn't it? But as we know, how you feel on the outside is very much determined by what's going on in the inside. Wouldn't it be nifty if we could actually find out easily at home what's going on inside your body so that we can match up how we're feeling with what's actually going on and take some preventative action before any kind of chronic disease or other health issues. Well, that whole concept is what we're exploring today because I'm chatting with Phil Hayes St. Clair from Drop Bio as we explore the world of chronic inflammation, personalized health, and evidence-based prevention. We're also going to talk about Phil's journey of bringing well-being by Drop to market in Australia and some lessons for others in the industry traveling on a similar path. Collaboration starts with a conversation, Team Health Tech. Let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Birch, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Phil Hayes St. Clair. He's the CEO of DropBio, a digital health and biotechnology company focused on chronic inflammation. DropBio is on a mission to accelerate the world's transition to personalized health. Hey, Phil, how are you going? Really well, Pete. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate you making the time. A fellow father of multiple small children and doing the home life. Yeah, well, if we get interrupted during this, maybe we can share screens and they can Zoom homeschool each other or something. That's it. Good fun. Okay, so let's get into it. Firstly, for those that didn't catch you at the Winter Summit when you were participated in one of those panels and would have learned a little bit more about yourself. But for those that missed that, tell us a little bit more about yourself, please, Phil. So I am a father of two girls and married to an extraordinary woman, which makes me a girl dad, also makes me a very fierce proponent of feminism. I am a serial entrepreneur. I built many companies. Drop by the one I think we're going to talk about today is my fifth. And I'm also an educator. So I have the great privilege to teach entrepreneurship and what it means to be an entrepreneur to MBA candidates at the University of New South Wales, as well as do a whole bunch of mentoring in startups and it's just nice to be able to pay it forward. So my day is spent company building and educating and looking after little people, which is a pretty cool way to live life. Love it, man. That's perfect intro. And tell us a little bit more about Drop Bio. Yeah. So Drop was built off the back of some really interesting research that happened here in Sydney. It was discovered by a really fantastic group of researchers that when you look at a standard blood sample, typically in conventional pathology, when you spin down the sample, you'll throw out a large part of that, typically the red blood cell component, and you'll just look at the plasma or the serum. And it was just one of those things that I discovered that there were some really interesting signaling molecules that lived inside that piece that was being discarded. And as we looked at DROP, I was asked to consider, could you help people understand more about their underlying health by analyzing whole blood that was collected remotely? to understand more about inflammation, which is the body's natural early warning system. And because it plays such a central role in health and disease, could you give insight, like translate that really complicated set of systems to help a consumer understand how they could act differently? And could you put that knowledge in the hand of clinicians and researchers to help accelerate the pace of their knowledge and give them great clinical decision support tools? So we started that journey in 2018 and we raised capital off the back of that and then COVID hit and We'll talk about that more, but it brought our world rushing towards us probably a decade 
sooner than what we expected. So it's been a pretty fun time. Really interesting. And this concept of personalized health, I'm particularly interested in how you've decided to focus on inflammation specifically. Tell us a bit about that space of deciding to focus on that and the personalization of health in that old trend where globally that's becoming an increasing focus as well. Yeah, none of this is new. We've not discovered anything here. Like if you could go back to early 2000s, there was this very famous Time magazine front cover that had on its flames and a red frame around the flames that said, is inflammation the silent killer? And what this article dove into was off the back of decades of clinical research that talked to this idea that there are these two types of inflammation, acute inflammation, which happens localized, resolves quickly, typically at the site of an infection or some kind of injury. And then you have systemic chronic inflammation, which is essentially your body protecting against outside threats. It's your immune system dealing with things that it needs to naturally deal with. But when that systemic chronic inflammation becomes unregulated, in other words, it continues to grow, it is often a signal, it's the smoke to where the fire is burning somewhere in your body. And because it's systemic, it means that the body is trying to cope with something that it really probably shouldn't be trying to have to cope with. And this is true for things like cancers, diabetes, arthritis, things that we know as chronic conditions. And the irony about all of that is that a signal in a change in well-being, so health, or a change in the signal of how you're unwell, a disease state, has been really difficult to measure up until maybe the last five years. We knew these markers existed. We knew that they operated with other collections of markers in what we refer to as systems biology. And the travesty about medical research is that what we try to do historically is we try to isolate down to one mechanism, one marker, one molecule, and understand how we can build things around that. What we looked at was this collection of inflammatory markers, which there are hundreds, play in really interesting concerts to deal with different things at different times. Our hypothesis was if we could measure all of those accurately over time, and we could build what we refer to as signatures, then we could bring to life this thesis that you could tell the onset of a chronic disease years before it can be conventionally diagnosed. And if you could do that and lay the plumbing for the data set for what that meant over time, then fascinating treatments, vaccines, and other things can be developed to treat a whole range of conditions, which today we have real trouble trying to treat. So that was really fascinating to us just as scientists. It was amazing that we can have access to this technology. And to give you a sense of this, last time you might have given blood or you had to go and get a blood test, there are milliliters of blood taken out of your arm, right? They go into tubes, they get sent off to the lab, and then you get the results or your clinician gets the results. And often they're measuring 10, 15, 20 markers at a time. And it's very efficient. And if you saw the factory style setup that pathology has to make this work, you'd be thoroughly impressed. It's a sight to behold. We look at up to 3,000 of these markers in three microliters of plasma, and that is a very small drop of fluid. And the fact that you can do that in a really accessible format, and the price, it's a bit like Moore's Law, the price continues to come down as the ability and the power of these diagnostic technologies continues to improve. That gives us huge access. And the fact that we've been able to do this remotely adds even more value to what we're doing. So it's just a really fantastic time to be alive, to be honest. So we're pretty excited about what we're seeing. That's so cool. So me as a member of the public, if I came across, so to go back one, how do people do these tests for themselves and who is it for? Is it for absolutely anyone is just 
remotely interested or is it for people that are getting an inkling that they need to investigate further? We released for pre-sale our first product that we call Wellbeing by Drop. It's a wellness product and that term wellness is really important in regulation. It's an indicator that allows for people to understand across more than 30 markers how their body is performing in seven different areas of health, which include things like nutrition, alcohol, stress, sleep. And what we do is help address what you think is happening to you through a digital questionnaire. And then we match that against the blood markers that match towards those lifestyle areas. And we see if they're far apart or if they're not far apart. If they're not far apart, it means that you're pretty in tune with what your body's doing. But most of us end up adding a bit of a rose-colored glass to what we think is going on. Uh, We haven't put on those kilos. Uh, We're feeling pretty good about ourselves. And then what our markers can do is actually there is room for improvement and we can help plot a path for how you become healthier as a consequence. And that's for people who are just interested in improving their general health, who want that extra level of data, and it is not for everyone. And this is available to any consumer. This doesn't require a doctor's intervention. What it does do and what lives in behind the philosophy of what we built at Wellbeing by Drop is this notion that wouldn't it be nice if you could take to your GP, who, by the way, spends a large part of their day in a Groundhog Day style situation, right? 11 and a half to 14 minutes at a time where they know the patient if they know them because they've got a relationship or someone who comes in off the street for an appointment. They've got five or six minutes to work out what's going on with that person, document that, And then a few minutes to work out what they should do. And then a minute after that to say, this is what happens next. And this happens ad nauseum every single day for them. One of our theses about building wellbeing by drop wouldn't it be nice if the consumer who we want to own that information about themselves elected to share that data with their GP. And before they walk into the room, the GP has been able to scan that clinical data, which is of a level of more detail for the doctors because they're trained. And then the doctor patient experience can be vastly different. We just thought that was cool. And every doctor that we've spoken to who's looked at what we're doing just goes, I would really love that because it takes the guesswork out of what I'm trying to do because the expectation on me as a GP is massive and I can't stay across everything. So any kind of clue or background information, particularly if it's like longitudinally available, becomes just a bit of a game changer for that primary healthcare clinician. So That's how we've set up that process. It's available to a limited number of people now and it'll become a longitudinal service from 2022. But that's just one area we play. The two other areas that we've elected to invest in, fertility, women's health across the board, but fertility most specifically, and also mental health. So should I dive into some of those? Bit of detail on that? Let's go into some more detail on that. Yeah, so what's interesting about fertility and pregnancy generally is that it is just a very significant inflammatory event, right? The way that a woman's body has to respond to establish itself, to nurture a new little being, to bring it across healthy into the world, and then to recover from that is nothing short of a miracle and frankly, just mind-blowing. But when we look at some of the issues that women have in trying to conceive, particularly those who resort to going to assistive reproductive services, that journey can be tough. And we've all heard stories of women and their partners who often don't talk about it, but once you realize just how harrowing the journey is, it's awful that what they've had to go through. We ended up partnering with Virtus Health, which is an ASX-listed multinational business, because they have decided to, and they had well before we arrived, they had decided to engage in making their fertility treatment highly precise with the express mission of trying to increase the success rates of their treatment. 
And we've partnered with them to apply our technology to further increase that precision. And our ambition here is to help them help women and their partners do an even better job of creating families. So we can do that because we know a fair bit about inflammation. We know about how it plays and we're doing clinical studies with them to generate the evidence to then become a regulated product to make that available inside their standard operating procedures, which we're super excited about. So that's infertility. We plan to move into postpartum health and then into menopause not long after that. And so the array for impact on women's health is really significant and it's super exciting because women are deeply underserved and frankly, they deserve better. And the access that we think we can provide them in partnership with Virtus and others, I think is going to be really fantastic. So we're excited about that. Yeah. So we've got the women's health side that's being worked on. Tell us a bit more about the mental health aspect too. When COVID hit, one thing, well, actually two key words became really, really prominent for us. One was inflammation, which became a very well-known term as a consequence of COVID hitting B with the inflammation response that we were seeing in people that's in some cases ended up killing people who suffered of COVID or contracted COVID. And the other one was finger prick blood. So in April of last year, the UK Ministry of Health decided to try and find ways to expand the testing volume to help their citizens get more rapid testing for diagnosis of COVID. And there is a serology-based test that has since been developed that uses finger prick blood to try and determine if you have been exposed through detecting antibodies from COVID-19. Imagine a little bit like a pregnancy test. So as soon as that was proposed, the word finger prick blood made its way to us really quickly because that's what we do as well. And it was, well, can you help? And the answer was no, because our biology is not virology. We don't deal in this. We wouldn't know where to start. But what was interesting was the team's desire to play a role. Obviously, we wanted to try and contribute somehow. So one of our team went back into the literature and looked at SARS and MERS and what happened in the mid-2000s. And what we discovered in that process was that many people who contracted SARS and MERS developed post-traumatic stress as a consequence of that illness because the change that happened to their lung tissue made it really difficult for them to breathe. And so chronically, as that went over time, they ended up developing PTS because they couldn't rest and recover. And it's because they couldn't breathe properly. And that started to make us think, well, what were the markers at play that led to that? And would there have been a treatment created to make that a better situation? In Australia at the time, we had nationally like 3,000 cases of confirmed COVID. And every researcher known to man was trying to get to those people to do interesting clinical studies to work out what COVID was all about. So it was very difficult for us to play a role. But what it did inspire us to look at was mental health was obviously on the growth path for all the wrong reasons. And as we started to go into lockdown, that became even more prevalent. And so we looked at the markers that were measured throughout those studies, those 10-year longitudinal studies for SARS and MERS. We realized the markers that we looked at were the same markers. And then we started to look at, well, what other mental health conditions share the same profile of those markers? Turns out, we look at those too. And so we developed a thesis that said, wouldn't it be interesting if we could use these objective biomarkers to create not a diagnostic service, but a rapid capacity to triage people into the right model of care so that they can get the right model of care when they need it. And that became really appealing. In fact, it was one of those things that we shared with scientists and investors, and it became a much needed part of the equation because right now, one of three things happens for anyone who is suffering deteriorating mental health, whether that be a mood disorder or other things. Number one, they don't get help, period, right? And it ends up spiraling out of control. 
And we've seen just how tragic that can end up, circumstances across the board. And all of us have had some degree of interaction with someone who has suffered of poor mental health, or frankly, we get up some mornings not feeling great, and that's just how it is. But most of us recover reasonably well. Second situation is that people present to a primary healthcare clinician, GP, and misdiagnosis happens or over-medication happens. Now, it doesn't happen all the time, but there's more evidence showing that's the case. And that's because GPs are GPs. They're not trained to look at all of these different conditions. And if there is somebody who comes and presents to them and they get referred to someone else, psychologist, psychiatrist, the amount of time it takes for you to get that appointment is terribly long, years in some cases. And that means that the condition can often get even further worse. The third issue or the third scenario is that people end up presenting to an emergency department through a whole range of those conditions playing out. And then they get taken to a psychiatric ward or worse still, they get turned away, in which case then they await treatment and then the medication begins. And that's getting worse and worse by the day, not just in Australia, right around the world. Mental health is a tremendously complicated area, but the use of biomarkers to try and triage where someone is at at a particular given time to give psychiatrists, psychologists, and other treatment providers more knowledge about how they could intervene, we think is a really important role that we can play where no one else is playing in that realm at the moment. People will, no doubt, but we're building clinical studies and the evidence to try and support that that triage model could be useful. And we hope we're rushing to get that done so that we can do multiple studies, build the evidence base and deploy that into public health as quickly as we can. That'll take us years to do, but we've started it and we're excited about it. Amazing to look at the potential of it over the longer period of time and to speak to some really important healthcare issues across the board. So that'll be really interesting to watch. Yeah. And your immediate focus right now is the product that you've brought to life, the Wellbeing by Drop. Tell us a bit about that whole journey of bringing the product to life. It was quick and quick because... Sometimes in ventures, things move really slowly for a long time. Then all of a sudden the penny drops and you can move faster than what you thought. So we formed this opinion at the very beginning of the company's establishment that we need to build trust in every quarter. And if we didn't, then we'd be brought unstuck. And that's everything from the evidence we built, the team members we surround ourselves with, the media that we had to look at, the springing up of all the hand-waving snake oil salesman style wellness that was very pervasive. And of course, we had to deal with Theranos, right? Which was the thing that came up the day we opened our seed round. That story broke the day we opened the seed round. Yeah. It's the first time in my career where I've had to put a slide in a pitch deck that explains why we're not another company. (laughs) But the irony about all of that was that we set up the business so that we could deliver regulated products so that we had the backing of the TGA, the FDA, whomever it was, in whatever jurisdiction we were going to be at to make that work. And that's a long process. And often investors and the capital that we would acquire from investors, there's an urgency, obviously, to not just generate returns, but to generate impact. And in the traditional stake, what you need to do is clinical trials, develop the technical file, take that through regulation, then deploy it through doctors or hospitals, whatever the case is. And that takes years. And talk to anyone who's done this before in life sciences, this can be a 10 or 15 year journey easy. And we just were trying to think about it a little bit differently, but we didn't want to skimp on any of the things that related to evidence because frankly, our scientists weren't about to, and our doctors weren't about to deploy anything that they couldn't stand behind because their reputations were at stake as well, as was all of ours. We were preparing well-being by drop to be a regulated product. 
And much to my surprise, in January of this year, the TGA decided to not regulate wellness products. And it was, huh, surprising. So mm. what could we do in the spirit of that decision to still put out a product that could be impactful, could help, but which didn't try to pretend that we were telling people things that would be unsafe or unhelpful? How do we thread the needle in what is a very gray area now they've decided not to regulate wellness products? And so from that decision point onwards, we ran hard to bring wellbeing by drop to market. The irony about bringing that to market is that we built an underlying platform called Systemic Chronic Inflammation Platform, which involves the logistics to collect samples either remotely or from our clinical trial partners, the lab-based analysis, the data modeling and machine learning to understand what we're seeing, and then how we represent that information back to the relevant stakeholder. That has been being built for years. And the good news is that all that work allowed us to then deploy wellbeing by drop as it will allow us to deploy our fertility products and mental health products. It allows us a really great scope advantage, but it felt like it happened very quickly, but we have to remember that it took us years to get to that point in the first place as well. And COVID helped accelerate that. I'm interested too, particularly in these solutions that you talk about the platform that's obviously scalable in that respect, but as well, if you're doing diagnostic stuff, particularly that involves consumers. Yep. There's all of the gubbins, the bits and pieces that come along with it. In scaling a business, that's another aspect to think about is logistics and coordinating those pieces too. Yeah, that's right. So for us, when we first started, we went to conventional pathology and we said to them, would you be open to doing the collection and sample processing? We'd frankly like to just focus on data and presentation and we want that to be our core capability, to which they said, mm, not interested, which is not surprising because as mature businesses, they're focused on their current incentive, which is public health. And for us to come along, we were saying, let's help you invest in small sample processing collected remotely because we know this is what the future looks like. And they said, yeah, look, it might be the future, but right now we're not good for it. And we're hoping that will change in the future. But that forced us to make this all work from end to end. So to be fully integrated, vertically integrated. And that meant that we had to learn about logistics. We had to learn about how to understand, protect samples in transit. We had to do that across multiple sample types, dry blood spot versus liquid blood. We had to have really good confidence that's going to work so that the results we gave to people were going to be useful. And to what extent those results were going to be ranges, clinical ranges or things that were indications, which is what we've done with wellbeing by drop. We don't provide pathology grade data, even though we have that in the background, we provide indications because that's what the regulation allows us to do, or at least that's our interpretation of it. So yes, we had to build labs from scratch. Yes, we had to build logistics profiles from scratch. We had to learn a lot of that. We were the first biotech company in Australia to hire lab space from a university, which we did at UNSW, and that's where we're currently housed. Because when we walked through, as COVID was taking effect, there weren't that many students walking the halls and you could see there's lab space. And my comment to a colleague was, so who's using that? And can we have some of that? And 11 months later, we had a deal to allow us to do that. But the things for the Australian biotech situation is, look, where does a young company that is doing really interesting stuff go and get lab space? The answer is, it's really hard. 
And so we're trying to build ecosystems here at UNSW to make that work so that other ventures can come and follow what we did and have access to world-class facilities to do the important work they need to do to generate the evidence to actually get a head start. And hopefully we're doing some good pioneering work on that basis, but we had to build it from scratch. And that's the case in most innovation. You've got to start it because other people don't see the vision you see. Yeah. That's amazing. And that's such a good cause to be focused on as well. And interested to see how that plays out. Regulations come up a few times in this conversation for different reasons and obviously critically important to a lot of aspects of your business. Tell us a bit about how that's been interwoven into the strategy for Drop. When I was asked to look at what we now know as Drop as a product, as a business, as a platform, I went back in history to see where people had tried to do this before in a different kind of context or any kind of context that involved biotech and direct-to-consumer and also the clinical aspect of what we're doing now. And I went back to look at, in particular, 23andMe, and I looked at how Anne and the team built out the platform they've built. And it's been a hell of a journey for that team from the beginning all the way through. What Anne helped me understand was that regulation is not something to abide by. It's actually something to embrace to the extent that it becomes a competitive advantage because the regulators are there to help keep people safe. And they're not as scary as you think they are. They're people who are just trying to do their job to make sure that people don't get given the medications that would cause them harm. And as we've seen with vaccine approvals, that's a tricky job to balance that degree of safety versus efficacy and whether it's going to be in the interest of the common good. So for us, we've actively hired the best people we can find in regulation so we can learn about it and so we can help them form opinions on things as well. And I don't know, many people would say you would run as fast as possible away from regulation. I'm not really of that view. Regulation can be difficult if you're trying to build something, no doubt. In the areas that we're focused on, there's varying degrees of regulation. But in this country, we have the TGA and we have places like NATA who help us build you constrain what we need to build into a particular area. And then if you're open to working with them, you can have tremendously productive conversations, which can inform the future of regulation. If you choose to be subject to that regulation and wait for it to happen, you'll be waiting a long time. But once you get to learn more about it, you see there's all these relationships around the world, particularly between the TJ here and then into Singapore, then to Canada, then to the US. There's a harmonization going on around the world, which makes it easier for a company like us to scale if we hit some of the most conservative standards in regulation, because when we move into those other geographies, we can say, well, look, we are approved by the TGA to do these things here. That carries massive weight as you move into other jurisdictions. Does it take longer? Is it more expensive? You bet it is. But there are ways to make that work and to work with those regulators because they're remarkably engaging. Once you get into the door and you say, look, this is what I'm trying to do, they will give you the time to work out how to do what you need to try and do. And they'll also tell you what is unsafe, which is probably the most important role that they can play. And it helps inform what your strategy looks like. If you're coming from a non-healthcare background or a non-biotech background, you will look at that regulation and feel as though it's stifling. But once you understand it and how you can play as part of it, it's actually pretty good. And frankly, you want to be on the right side of history. So it's important to try and influence and help with that evolution. Mate, that's such a good answer to that point around regulation and innovation and taking that perspective of working with regulation, with the regulators in inverted commas, to go on that journey of innovation because everyone plays an important part. And as you say, it's a critical aspect of all of it, particularly in the health and biotech space. So yeah, sitting around and waiting for it to happen is not going to be the way around. It's such a good perspective. Thank you. 
One thing I also want to talk about is this approach being direct to consumer, but in a clinical world. And like you say, you mentioned before, there's a lot of snake oil sales people in the wellness space and doing things that are direct to consumer. You're obviously not that, but having those relationships with clinicians is also critically important too. Yep. How do you play that whole balance with working with the clinicians versus working with the consumers and bringing everything together? I think you're only as powerful as the people you surround yourself with. The people that decide to come and join us, Denton CEO, Darren Saunders, Jeannie Mansberg, all of these people are accomplished professionals that come with reputation who, if they saw what we were doing and decided that it was snake oil or some sort of mystical thing, they would run a thousand miles in the opposite direction. They also know that innovation takes calculated and well-informed risk that can be explained as long as progress is continued. And so what we've done is we've built medical and clinical advisory boards that can help tell us where we shouldn't be going and how to translate what we're seeing. And to use that influence to do things like create professional development modules for GPs in particular, to learn more about what all these biomarkers are, what they mean, how they interact. Because keep in mind for doctors, particularly in our realm, they would have heard all of this in med school over two or three lectures, way, 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 way back. They'll recognize the names as they tell us, but how do they act? What are they there to do? How do we measure them and what do they mean? This is not stuff that you get taught at med school. So for us, what we try and do is we are pro-education for our consumers in a consumer appropriate way. We are pro-education in a clinician format and also in a researcher format because we're not trying to say for a second that we could crack all the nuts that need to be cracked in order to make sense of what we're seeing. We need to engage with clinicians, but the only way that you can have those conversations, even to open the door, is to say, here's the evidence we're building or the evidence we've got. If you haven't got the evidence, you can't play the game. And this is the travesty for innovation in this area because evidence creation is expensive and it takes time. So we've had to invest in that discomfort. We continue to but man, I tell you what, once you've got it, it makes the conversation so much more straightforward because it's the pillar for trust. And then those doctors and clinicians that we work with are able to carry our voice forward and be our advocates. This is not like building an advisory board by looking at LinkedIn, reaching out to 100 people saying, slap this on my LinkedIn profile, now you're part of the crew and go and sell what we've got. It's not like that. It takes time, it takes a bucket of trust. And we're proud how we've gone about doing that. We started that through the drop-in, which is an online women's health community we built. We had some of these clinicians come and speak at that as our guests. We got to know what their philosophy was, the areas that they think are letting their patients down in the healthcare system. They gave us some insights. We shared some back. And like most relationships, you build it over time and you end up with just a cracking bunch of humans that you can really collaborate with and you respect their time, they respect yours and you get on famously. Amazing. I've seen that advisory board too, and I saw Ginny came on too. She's been on the show before. We know her. We've got some great people that are participating in that. So, yes, some fantastic perspectives. Yeah. Look, starting to round things out, Phil, you've touched on what the future looks like and what you guys are focusing on when it comes to the women's health side and the mental health. But what are some of the things we can expect to see coming from Drop over the next 6, 12, 24, or what's on the horizon? You'll expect to see more of the well-being by drop products being made available across the country. And certainly it becomes what we refer to as a multi-sample experience so people can check themselves multiple times a year and track their progress. And that's really important for people that want to understand how their biology is reacting to an intervention that they want to make for themselves. Lose weight, gain weight, get more sleep, get less stressed. This is the way that we can help people understand that in a really safe kind of format. You'll see more 
outputs from our clinical trials and the partnerships we're doing to accelerate that piece of work. And there will also be hints about how, as we start to understand how we can move offshore, some of those jurisdictions that we're going to be targeting to make that work. And it's, I know, look, if COVID's taught us anything, particularly in research and the clinician sphere, is that you can collaborate so seamlessly with research groups and other partners across borders than any other time previously. And it's awesome because you get to bring in intellect and experience that you would never have been able to reach out to. Even if you drove around every single research house in Sydney, you still wouldn't be able to find them. So it's a really interesting point. And I think the thing that gets us out of bed in the morning, which is going to take us a number of years to sort out, is this idea of unlocking the body's natural early warning system. So decades of literature tell us that over time, the markers that we're looking at will help us identify the early onset of a whole range of chronic diseases. Our main game is to try and codify what we're seeing with those signatures and make them available so the world's best treatment creators and vaccine developers and people who are involved in that arena have rock-solid data from which they can start to investigate how to deal with somebody who has a cancer that has started to evolve, which right now, even if we knew that, they wouldn't be able to provide any real treatment for it's about bringing that forward. And I use the analogy about what Singapore must have been like before it became the Singapore we know of today. It was a flat, desolate swampland. There wasn't a lot there until Singapore became built and the infrastructure and investment was made to create it to become a hub. What we're trying to do is similar to that. We're trying to build the data sets that allow clinicians and researchers to go, this is the key we were missing in our research. This will unlock changes to autism. This will unlock changes to cancer treatment and oncology. And we're massively excited about that. And the reason we chose inflammation is because we think it's one of the fundamental building blocks to how those keys get built. So we're playing three levels down in the underlying infrastructure of what's going on here. We're super excited about it. Amazing. That's an inspiring vision and looking forward to watching it play out. And for those that are keen to check out wellbeing by drop and to get some data on comparing what they're actually feeling versus what's actually going on. How can they check that out? Visit dropbio.com or wellbeingbydrop.com. All the information is there. And as always, I'm always available to chat about. I love talking about this and very keen to help partners, future clinician researchers that would want to engage and learn more. You can reach out to me anytime. We're always building partnerships. We're keen to learn and we don't know everything. We're keen to learn with you. So let me know. Love it. Thanks, Phil. Look, I'll put some details in the show notes of this episode so people can check all that out and get in touch with you if they're keen to discuss more. Good luck with the future and thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for listening to the show. Check out talkinghealthtech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the Australian health tech industry. Also, make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it. Now go make it happen.